Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with public speaking coach, speaker, and author, Peter George. As a public speaking coach, he specializes in helping professional public speakers, authors, consultants, and executives be calm, confident, and credible every time they speak in public. He works with them through one-to-one coaching, corporate group training, and public speaking classes. As a result, they can increase their impact, influence, and ultimately their income. Throughout his childhood, he dealt with a lisp and a stutter. As a result, he grew up shy and introverted, avoiding communicating with others as much as possible. When he got into the business world, he quickly realized that that lack of presentation skills kept him at a disadvantage. He fixed all of that, and he soared. Enjoy this interview. Well, hey, thanks for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So before we get into your life and how you arrived at where you're at, some things in between there, I want to know, you know, over this last couple of years, COVID's kind of, you know, rattled our cages. And I'm curious, you know, how did you adapt? How did you, what, what kinds, kinds of things did you learn about yourself that made you better as we kind of hopefully emerge out of this uh, pandemic and get into a new era? Well, when it first happened, if you can remember, everybody thought this was going to be a two-week deal. And two yeah. weeks, we'll be back to work. And then after two weeks, well, in two months, we'll be back to work. Well, other than my existing business, my business dried up because everybody said, well, let's wait till we can meet in person. What else are we going to do? We hadn't thoroughly turned to video at that time. And uh, I get nervous, and I had to look deep within myself because I thought, I'm not going to have a business as this went on and on. And I joked with my wife that I was going to go to the local zoo and clean up after the elephants, and she reminded me that no one was going to the zoo, therefore they didn't need anybody taking particular care of that. So I really didn't know, and I had to look deep about what I was going to do and how I was going to handle it. And just as I started to truly get nervous uh, of my business being gone, it came back. It just came back. People get used to the idea of, hey, this is going to be long-term. We don't know how long. Video is fine. And I was fine with video to begin with because I have clients all over the world. So that didn't make a difference to me. But my, the vast majority of my clients who are uh, within a couple hundred, few hundred miles for the most part, they uh, New York City and up through New England, they were like, I just want to wait. And that made it tough. So I really thought I was going to be looking for a new job. <laughs> Finally. But, and, and in COVID, what was that going to be? So uh, it, it was tough for a while. It weighed on me a great deal every day. But my wife, who owns her own business, whose business just got even better, her income and personal income and business revenue skyrocketed, but... Uh, she just kept reminding me, just be persistent, just be persistent, everything will be fine. So my wife, who's my best friend and uh, been my wife for over 30 years, uh, she's a rock. And I, I leaned on her and she supported me. So it's pretty cool. Isn't that kind of something that's been emblematic of this is that level of resilience? And I have a couple of teenagers in the house and I think the younger generations especially – 
have to have some level of them that have been insulated, you know. I mean, almost in regards to, like, the greatest generations. I don't know that we've gone through anything this magnanimous. So I guess my question is, do you see that there's a level of us that has grown stronger collectively, maybe even more with the younger generations because of what they've had to endure? Yeah, to some degree. I think that's within us anyway, and I I joke that when I was eight, I was hit by a car, and I wasn't expected to make, make the night. I was given my last ride. Somehow at the last moment, I pulled through, and that seems like a lifetime ago, and I've, I've had numerous injuries over the years, and other than the car accident, none of it equates to what we went through and what people went through for the last couple of years. But I think we have a resiliency built in to begin with, and whenever it's called upon in any great magnitude, we step up to it. Not everybody, but for the most part, we step up to it. And in a lot of cases, because what other choice do you have? So whether it was during the wars, like we say, the greatest generation of World War II, or what kids have gone through now and what they can have for resilience, I think it's built in. I think it's the the desire or need for survival, and even when we get frustrated or nervous or whatever it might be, that we uh, bound back, we find that way. You know, water seeking the path of least resistance. We find a way to go through. You know, it's funny. I saw a sign the other day and said that uh, struggle is strength. My wife and I were out for a ride over the weekend, and... I said to my wife, but that's not necessarily true. You don't have to struggle to have strength. We do, and that's, I guess, what we're talking about here. But if you think the Grand Canyon, water didn't struggle. Water flowed to the path of least resistance. The Grand Canyon was the result, but it didn't struggle, and that was extremely powerful. So whether it's something that we're going through, like COVID, hopefully went through, like covid or uh, or just everyday life, I think we have that resiliency in us. And I know I'm getting philosophical here, and I'm not the greatest philosopher, but I just believe it's in us. What other choice do you have? I got it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's the thing about this. It was all a monopoly, and you had to find a way to get through it, and whatever you were before this happened only got magnified, you know, during it. Um, you know, when you look on paper – you know, you're an author, you're a public speaking coach, and you're a speaker yourself. But if someone was to run into you and say, Peter, what do you do? What is it that you do every day? How would you answer that? Well, if if we're talking in the business side of it, the simple answer is I help people develop and deliver compelling messages and engage with their audiences. If we're getting down to brass tacks, it's simple. I help people be more confident. In, and generally in ways they didn't know they could or levels they didn't know they could achieve. When people go through what I work with them on, they're hiring me to help them become more effective speakers, cre- how to cre- learn how to create more engaging messages and the like. What they don't expect is the confidence they get out of it. Yet to a person, in all the years I've been doing this, that's what we talk about at the end. And they're the ones who bring it up. I wait for them to bring it up about how this confidence not only affects them in public speaking, getting them in front of others and giving them messages that resonate with those audiences, their audiences, but 
the confidence that permeates other areas of their life. And that's a pretty cool thing. So, you know, one of the things personally for me, you know, I, I do radio and, and I've always done journalism at different levels of that. I, I've had no problems getting up in front of people ever since I was in high school. But I think about that ultimate fear that humans have. And one of the top fears that people have is speaking in front of people. And, and, and I think I understand why, but for, for you and this being your business and seeing it as long as you have, what kind of secrets or what kind of nuggets of wisdom have you gained over the years of, of working with people that would shine a light on why this is such a profound fear for humans? Well, I believe it's uh, on several levels. First one being it's built in us, all right, going all the way back to caveman days, so-called caveman days. We, we had to be aware if a bunch of people were facing us. It probably wasn't a good good situation. It's either our tribe's not happy with you, which means you're going to die. <laughs> They're either going to kill you or banish you. Either way, you're dead in a short time. Another tribe, which means you're enslaved or killed, and either way, you're dead in a short time. Or wild animals, which meant you were dinner. And that's oversimplifying it, but that's that's the lizard brain. That's back in our earliest form of our brain. More recently in our lives is what parents tell us or other people tell us. Speak when spoken to. Don't speak to strangers. All these things about speaking. Don't speak while the adults are speaking. All these different things that put it in our mind that speaking is uh, something to be highly aware of and probably not done in front of others. So depending on how your parents brought you up and terms they use. Teachers, the same way. Right? What are we taught in school? Don't speak. You can't speak till I recognize you to speak. So we have all these different things. Funny thing is, I believe it's truthfully what we try to do, because so many people say, well, I'm good in front of one, two, maybe three people, but I can't speak in front of 10 people or 50 people or 1,000 people. Well, getting up there and speaking is one thing. Being able to speak to 10, 50, or 1,000 is impossible. You can't do it. You can only speak effectively anyway to one person. But we try to get in our mind how we're going to speak to 50 people. And we try to devise a way. And we get nervous because unconsciously we're realizing it can't be done. You can't have a conversation with 50 people. You can have a conversation with one that at a time that's replicated 50 times or 100 times or 1,000 times. So when we start looking at it that way, that we, I'm just having a conversation with one person. Now, is it as simple as that? No. But that has to be in the bedrock of your mind that you're just having a conversation with one person like you normally do. And quite frankly, when we fashion a message focused on one person, that's what resonates. I'll give you a simple example. Again, oversimplifying things here. But a simple example, if I said to a crowd of 50 people, how many of you are nervous about public speaking? Or how many of you have been on the radio? Well, I'm trying to speak to 50 people. And that doesn't resonate with people. Now I'm just one of a group. I don't matter. But if I said, raise your hand if you have been on, on the radio. Now I'm having a conversation with one person. That's when people go, wow, he was speaking directly to me the whole time. And you want 
It's not going to happen, but you want all 50 of them to say that. Now, if 42 of them say it, that's not a bad, <laughs> a bad uh, batting average. So speak to one person. Get it out of your mind that you're speaking to many. And the other thing I just say is breathe. You got to do it anyway. Relax. Any time, well, that's a, a painting with a uh, broad brush, but most times when we get nervous, we hold our breath. Think when <laughs> you said you have kids. Think if your kids are around the corner and you walk into the kitchen, they go, boo, and you jump. Right? What's the first thing you do? You go, <gasps> and you hold your breath. When we get nervous, we hold our breath. So when we learn to breathe, not only does it send more oxygen to our lungs, our heart, our brains, and our extremities, but it helps our memory, and it helps us relax. If you do yoga, think of cleansing breaths. People who have had children, women who have had children, cleansing breath. Helps us relax. Okay, so when people start to realize when we work together that it's this simple, not necessarily easy, but it's this simple. There's no magic nugget. There's, it's just, here's what you do. And this is what happens to your mind and your body. The other thing is to understand that our body preps us for exciting things. If you love to jump out of planes, what happens to you? And I have a client who does jump out of planes. And I asked her, what happens to you before you jump? My heart races. My blood pressure goes up. My knees get weak. I get nervous. And, man, I'm loving it. I'm like, wow, that's cool. So <clears throat> a friend loves to go on all these new roller coasters. Nelson, what happens? My heart races, my blood pressure goes up, my knees get weak, my mind goes kind of blank other than what's happening right at that moment. Da -da 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 -da. I'm like, wow, that's cool. Ask anybody what happens to them when they get nervous, it's public speaking or anything else. My heart races, my blood pressure goes up, my knees get weak, my voice cracks, my mind goes blank. It's the same thing. It's an adrenaline rush. An adrenaline rush is an adrenaline rush. It's your mind and your body prepping you to do something pretty cool. And what I tell my clients is if you stop feeling that adrenaline rush, it's time to stop it. No different when, than when the athlete or the singer or whoever it may be stops feeling that adrenaline rush. They don't care anymore. And as my client who jumps out of the plane says, the day I don't get that, is the day I better stop jumping because I don't care about the safety and everything else involved anymore. You know, that's so revelatory. I was thinking about what you were saying about how we do halt kids from saying things. And my 17-year-old is special needs, and he had a really hard time speaking. And I've never really held him back from going up to people and being curious and talking. And he absolutely has no fear, especially when it comes to athletes. Um, it doesn't matter how big or how small they are, he goes right up to them, and they're totally receptive. They feel it, and I think that's a big thing with kids. I think they're always relegated to, you're the kid, you're not supposed to be involved with this, and I just always kind of give him a free reign. I think part of it is based on who he is and him trying to find his identity, but he does have a level of gregariousness, and um, he just, you know, these athletes, whether it's Alex Smith or Tyreek Hill, because I'm here in Kansas City, 
they just totally, I've seen it happen, and it's, it's kind of a magical thing. They really do respond. In fact, um, one of the guys that was the hero for the Tampa Bay, Brett Phillips, before he left Kansas City, there was an auction that he did during with the YMCA, and they were playing some weird bracelet baseball, and, and I could just see how happy they were just to kind of have that. But anyways, it's just that fear, and I think about that, how if we let these kids feel unbridled, they're going to go for it, and it's going to help them not feel so, you know, bound back from doing that. Um, I agree. But I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, just let them, let them be who they are. Um, how did this begin for you? How did you get to a point where you decided this was going to be a, a, a course in your life that you were going to take, and how, how did you get comfortable with public speaking? Well, it's kind of a long story. I'm a very improbable public speaker, and the reason is I grew up with a lisp and a stutter, and I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I live right outside of there now, and... When you grow up with a lisp and a stutter, when you're a little kid, you learn to do two things very well, or at least you should. One is shut up, <laughs> which is kind of opposite of what you're saying, and I believe you're right. If you're but uh, if you didn't want to get picked on, you, you didn't want to stutter or speak with a lisp in front of other people. Your, your close friends was fine, family fine, but I didn't answer questions in school. I If a teacher called, they knew. I wouldn't. I said, I'll show you my... Homework before class, after class, but don't call on me in class because I'll just stare at you. I won't answer you. And I didn't. I went through what they called therapy back then, <laughs> which I called torture. But more or less, it worked. By the time I hit high school, my lisp and stutter were all but gone. And they still rear their ugly heads every once in a while. But the other thing you also did was, to not get picked on, was become pretty proficient in sports. Because if you were, you'd, people didn't pick on the athletes. They just didn't. So no matter what age. So I did those two things and did them both fairly well. But when I got to out of school and into the business world, and I worked at Sony Corporation, I had to present in front of people. And I said to my boss, Rich, I don't do this. And he basically said, well, then clean out your desk. Well, that's not a good answer. <laughs> so I went and got help. First of all, truthfully, I read books. I listened to cassette tapes. Tells you how long that it was. Listened to them in the car uh, again and again and again. And I got better. But I didn't get as good as I wanted to be. At this point, I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I want to be better. So I went and got group coaching. And that was really good. And then I found out I could get one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I got one-on-one -on -one coaching. And that was awesome. And about that time, I left Sony. And uh, I, I lived away from Rhode Island at that point, and my dad died, so I came back to Rhode Island to make sure my mom was okay. And I uh, thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I came up with the idea that I was going to open a publishing company, even though I didn't know the first thing about publishing. And over 15 years, I became the leader in its niche. But here's why that's relevant. I was asked to speak. As a matter of fact, I was asked to speak by a major corporation because they came out with a new product for publishers, and I adopted it. I was the second company in New England to adopt it. And they said, would you go out with us on the road, kind of, in New England, and help us promote this? I'm like, sure. You don't pay me to do that? I would love to. Well, that meant speaking. I'm like, well, I'm getting better at this. I'll do that. And what I realized was every time I spoke, we got a bump in revenue. 
and it didn't take me long, especially since my wife's an accountant, to understand that if you do this, you get more money. Well, I'm going to do more of this. And that's truthfully how it began. There was no magic moment or anything. It was just I was asked to do it at some point. It proved valuable, so I kept doing it. And then I've spoken in seven countries uh, numerous times all across the U.S., every state in the U.S. except, uh, well, the 48 country, uh, content, uh, <laughs> 48 contiguous states. And uh, it's been a blast over the last 35 years speaking. I absolutely love to converse with others. And then as far as coaching goes, but halfway through that, about 17 years ago, some of the people came up to me and said, especially younger speakers, hey, I saw how you did that. Could you tell me about that? And I realized I love that just as much, if not even more. And here's why, Joe. When you speak to people, most of us speak to inform. And I believe that's okay. And that's perfectly average. But who got up today and looked in the mirror when they were brushing their teeth or combing their hair and said, I want to be perfectly average today. So if you want to go beyond being perfectly average, don't speak to inform, speak to transform. You have the opportunity to transform someone, whether it's transform their revenue, what they think, what they do, what they want to do, what they want to accomplish, knowing how to accomplish it. You have the ability, every time you're speaking to people, to transform someone's life. And that's a pretty cool thing. So is when I'm coaching someone, I'm transforming their life. Now, I'm 64 years old, as a matter of fact, a week after we uh, are recording this. I'm 64 years old. I won't live long enough to see the, the result of the transformation my younger clients achieve. But I know at this moment that I had a part in that. And how can you beat that? Tell me anything in life that is is more enjoyable, more satisfying than being able to affect someone's life in that way. Because if I can help them achieve being a more effective public speaker, a captivating public speaker who resonates with their audience because they're speaking with their audiences, then that's going to make a difference maybe in their revenue, their income, which might make a difference in sending their kid to college or not, or might make a difference in buying that house on the, the ocean that they always wanted or that boat or whatever it is, just living more comfortably. How can you beat that? So for me, it's, it's, the coaching is cool. The result is amazing. And you may have just answered my next question, which is what has been the best response you've gotten from a client or someone's life that you've touched? Something that resonates with you, you think, wow, wow that's, that was amazing. Uh, there are so many. Uh, one of them I, I kind of answered already in that it was the president of a global company who hired me to help him with his public speaking. And he was 55 years old at the time. Again, president of this major company. And when he called me, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is kind of cool, but man, this guy's obviously accomplished. And when we started working together, I'm like, yeah, he does need help. 
Well, at the end, what he said to me was just what I said before. I hired you to help me with my public speaking coach, my public speaking, and you did that. And I'm so much better at it. What I didn't expect was the level of confidence that I would achieve that I didn't even know I could rise up to. So that's a great one. Another one is a, a former athlete who said to me, I never thought I could do this. I thought I would get marginally better working with someone like you, but I never thought I would actually have the opportunity to, to start to master the craft. So it's things like that. Again, that transformation in people's lives, how they feel about something, how they feel about their ability, how they feel about helping other people. Now it's not just speaking. It's helping other people in one way or another. It's helping them transform for whatever, for whatever reason that audience is there. So sometimes it's pure entertainment, especially when an athlete does a little league thing or a football uh, dinner, that sort of thing. But most of the time, they're there to transform people. And truthfully, they can even take advantage of that time. They could be at a little league dinner and take advantage of that time of make a difference in a young person's life. And that's the stuff I hear when they understand that this is a new tool they have to make a difference in people's lives along the way. So speaking of transformative, who have been, you know, a role model or a hero or someone that you've admired and looked up to that's fueled who you are? Well, that's simple. And it's probably corny, but it was my dad. My dad was my hero. Um, still is. Still is to this day. He died when I was 30, so he died 34 years ago. Still my hero to this day, and in many ways, still my mentor. I, I have another mentor that I work with every month, but he's still my mentor in many ways. And Jim Valvano, I'm going to make up, the, I'm going to screw up the uh, quote, but Jim Valvano said, and it goes something like, my dad gave me the greatest if possible. He believed in me. And that's the way I feel about my father. My father was a firefighter in Providence. Uh, he taught me more about business. He wasn't a business person, never knew a darn thing about business. But he taught me more about business because when we talked about business on my parents' porch, he in his rocking chair out on the front porch, and I would go and speak about business, really saying, God, I hope he understands what I'm trying to get to. And he would turn that around and, and turn it into the human side. And so no matter what it was that I was facing in business, whether I was working for Sony at the time or uh, just starting my own company, he died just right after I started my own company, he would turn it around to the human side. And I, so I learned more about business being about people from him than anybody else I've ever met. And all that confidence he instilled in me and all the, you know, and, and I even joke, one of the things my father used to say when I was a real little kid, pestering him when he was trying to get something done in the yard or something was go play in traffic. And then I got hit by a car and almost died. And I thought, well, he'll never say that again. Well, he gave me about a year to heal. And then he would say again, go play in traffic. So, uh, you know, it's just, he was just a great guy. And, I, I have a book coming out uh, in two weeks, 
end of the first week of July. And uh, it's dedicated to my wife and my father. So after all these years, it's still in the books about public speaking. But it's, uh, and it says, Dad, I wish you were here to see this. Because he would have enjoyed it. Because he'd see what it did on the human side. The fact that it was a book and published and all that, he couldn't care less about that. But he'd see how it would help people. And that's what he would talk about is how are you going to help people in this life? Because that's what he did for a living. The, the one thing that we learned over this time to the pandemic was how important art was, whether it was TV, movie, visual, music, whatever it was. And there's always those moments where we encounter something, whether it's a book or an album or something along those lines. What was that moment for you as someone that's an author um, and that's a writer? What, what moment, what, what artistic statement really moved you and kind of helped fuel who you are? It's funny. Uh, I listen to Eric Clapton every day. At least once a day, I listen to Eric Clapton. I put it on in the shower. Probably listen to him in the car later on in the day. But if I don't get in the car, I have to hunker down on my desk all day or something like that. I will listen to his music in the shower. And where, whenever I need uh, support or have to just, I, I just need something, I turn to his music. I don't know why. I don't know why it resonates with me the way it does. It has since I was 12. And... Uh, in high school, I started playing a particular song of his before every – I played hockey, baseball, and football. So before every game, I played this song. When I speak, I still play that song before I speak. People say, what's your ritual before you speak? Before I leave the hotel room or wherever it might be, I listen to that song. I get quiet, and the same thing happened in COVID. That other than my wife who's, again, my best friend, my greatest support, and I try to be hers. Uh, other than that, probably diving into, if not falling into, his music was therapeutic for me. Let me ask you this. Of everybody that's alive on the planet right now, if you could meet one person and have a conversation with them, who would it be? For people who are alive. Yeah, anybody on the planet. Oh, God. You know, I don't know if there's anybody I say I've got to meet. I don't think I have an answer for you. Okay, that's fine. And I can, I can try to, <laughs> you know, and I could, no, probably no. Call my, I could probably call my wife and say, who do I want to meet in this planet? And she'd go, oh, that's a stupid question. You want to meet this person, this person? You've said it all the time. But at the top of my head, I can't think of people who are alive. I can't think of uh, any that, well, you know, I, I do. I'll, I'll, I'll back up. I do. And this isn't going to be anything. Sort of, there's someone who's on my podcast who I've become friends with, and I've never had the opportunity to, to meet her, but I would like to hop on a plane and go meet her because uh, while writing my book, I called on her, and she was happy to provide something that I was having a little trouble with even though she's not a public speaking coach. And uh, I would like to meet her, to tell you the truth. So nothing ground, earth-shaking or shattering, but um, that's it. No one's famous. That's just not me. People say, well, would you like to meet Clapton since you're enamored with his music? 
Like, nope, I'm fine where we are. We have a good relationship. He doesn't know it, but I do, and that's enough. Yeah, I was ne- I was definitely not going to assume that. That's a problem with when you start assuming certain things. Um, so let's say you have a dream tonight, and you run into your younger version, you know, maybe in your 20s when you were roaring, ready to go, and you could give your younger version one piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've accumulated throughout all these years. What would you say to that younger version? Compound interest in every form. Money, debt, friendships, relationships, compound interest, to me, is the strongest thing on this planet other than wind and water. So there's strength in compound interest. You put money away in your 20s and leave it, invest it wisely, and just let it go, you're going to come out a multimillionaire. You rack up debt, that'll siphon that compound interest debt-wise, will siphon your any profits you could even imagine making out so fast it's not funny. And then compound interest, I believe, also is in relationships where you can have uh, faith in each other, uh, stability in each other, all these attributes for other people that can grow when you put effort into it. So, yeah, compound interest would be it. It's one of the things my dad told me. I went, yeah, 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 I'm making a lot of money. Don't worry about it. Everyone has a perception of you, an idea of who they think you are, your your family, your clients, your friends, anyone that meets you. But ultimately, you're driving the boat. You're living your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> I still think I'm just a, a kid from Providence, Rhode Island, from a lower-income family who enjoys life. And I still think I'm seven, and so does my wife. My wife says someday I'm going to marry an adult. Well. Good luck with that, but it certainly isn't me. Uh, for instance, we go out hiking every weekend. We're here in Rhode Island, New England, wherever it might be. We go hiking somewhere. And the other day, there was this massive puddle, all mud. And she is walking around it, and I jumped in it like a seven-year-old. Got mud all over me, mud all over her. And she just looked at me and shook her head and said, I should have expected that. And so where in business, I come off with this persona of this business person, and let's do this right, let's have fun doing it, but truthfully, I'm just a, se- a silly seven-year-old kid at heart. One of my fondest memories when when my son was younger was this, after it really rained, we'd go out the car and find the biggest puddle and just go into it and, and the <laughs> joy that he got, you know? And I still do this day, and I do the same thing with my wife. If I see something on the road that's safe enough to hit, I'm like, wait, wait, listen. And I just I just run over it, and, and I love it, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm, I'm right there with you, Joe. <laughs> I, I get it. I love it. It's that unbridled thing. I remember one time, too, my, uh, I, I have a stepdaughter who's 16, and her uh, boyfriend just graduated, and we were at the graduation party, and there was an old-timer there, and I went over, and I was just kind of like, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? You know, because during those parties, you got to write all this stuff down. And I was thinking about myself. When I was in college, I took a poetry class, and there was a woman in there that was in her probably 70s, and obviously going back to college just to get her degree. And she told everybody, she said, no matter what you do in life, don't grow up. 
Everybody's running, you know, and, and, and I always remember that woman. I will never remember her name, but I have quoted that story hundreds of times in my life because it is totally 100% true. The level of frivolity and joy that you can give yourself is childlike. And I always remember the poet Charles Bukowski said, we're born, we're born geniuses and buried idiots. The amount of walls we put up around us throughout our lives is ridiculous. And when you can find that joy of jumping in that puddle, you got your nirvana right there every day. Well, I, and, and I love that quote. It's, it's, and it's absolutely uh, accurate. But think of what happens to us. It gets beat out of us almost. Creativity is, is virtually beat out of us. In the... You're in, you're in school? No. Sit there and listen. Don't be yourself. Don't be creative. Sit there and listen. You get into college, you go to a class, you're here for this specific class. You're not here to learn how to be a human being and handle the world as an adult. You're here for this specific class. And I say to my clients, when you were in kindergarten, I asked you to draw a horse. And I was going to tell you that when you were done, I'm going to put your name on it and put it out in the hallway for everybody to see. You would go, cool. And you'd make a horse. I don't care if it's a stick figure. I don't care if it looks like a turtle. That was the greatest horse in the world, and you were proud of it. Ask a 21-year-old senior in college, and you say, I'm going to have everybody here draw a horse. I'm going to put it out in, around campus with your name on it. I can't draw a horse. What I do won't look like a horse. I can't draw. And that's, that's what happens in very sh short years, amount of years, is... The we lose the creativity and the desire just to be us. And a lot of people, unfortunately, I think, not being a psychologist, but spend a lot of years just trying to find themselves. And because of my dad and other instances, I've had the pleasure of knowing who I am most of the way. Absolutely. I think one of the most powerful things that we can convince ourselves is the word yes. No is a dangerous word. Um, yeah. Take it from improv. And I had someone who's been doing improv for many years put this in my head. Life is improv. We don't know where life's going. Right? We get up every day thinking we do. <clears throat> but most of the time, life says, hold my beer and watch this. So we think we have command and we don't. But what's improv? Improv. And people love improv because it's silly and things you don't expect come up, improv is yes and. No matter what the other person says, you say yes. You don't say no because that stops the flow. So whatever it is, it's yes and. And then it just keeps going and going and going. Well, that's life pretty much till they shut off the lights and your life is done. But life is an improv. And I really believe if you just say yes, kind of cool where it goes. You know, my main vocation is being a uh, jazz radio host, and I interview jazz musicians all over the world. And the one thing that I've learned from them, and it seems rather simple and rote, and I've been doing this since 2011, is I've learned acutely over the years that they celebrate the fact that every time they go on stage, they will never make a song sound the same. Whoever it is, it could be Miles Davis, it could be anybody. There is no way that they will ever play all of those notes at the same. Now, a lot of bands will do that. that. That's their goal. They'll go up and do the same thing. But they celebrate that, and they like that freedom, and that's their number one answer. You know, what do you, 
what he liked about about jazz is always that freedom. And I understand that intimately because that's the way life is. There's every single moment you live will never, ever be alone so acutely from these cats. And I love that because that's just the way it is. Yeah, you, you just don't know. And, and and whether it's, you use the term rolling with the punches or being ready for every possibility, which you can't be. But, you know, it's just in, enjoy life. I look at it this way. You know, and, and an 8-year-old, when an 8-year-old is told he's not going to make it through the night, and you do, you don't sit there and go, well, it's because you just keep moving on. Kind of like a dog. They get up every day. Do I feel good? Do I not feel good? Then it's life. So an 8-year-old doesn't look back and go, wow, I've been given a second chance. And now at this age, it's hard to remember being eight. You know, that's like you saw it in the movies. So, but when you think of it logically, it's like, yeah, I was given a second chance. And I'm not one to go, well, I've been given a second chance. I've got to make uh, the world a better place. or what. I, I just do my part. And, you know, do I have things I regret? Yeah. I don't look back on a lot of things, but there's some things I probably would have rather done differently. Uh, especially if I did something to hurt someone, I would rather have done that differently. Uh, life, life just throws stuff at you and you do what you can. And when I talk about, when I think about public speaking, which is obviously the main part of my life, what I do, it's what I write about, it's what I talk about. It's not like I'm some great public speaker. I just try to connect with the people I'm speaking to based on their wants and needs. And the other thing is, growing up with a lisp and a stutter, this isn't what I was supposed to do. So when I look at it, I'm like, I sh- I'm not supposed to be doing this in the first place. So I don't have to be the best in the world at it. I don't have to worry about if someone else is judging me, either my speaking or my coaching. I just do the best I can do. And that's it. That's it. And, Joe, if you don't mind indulging me for a short anecdote, please. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I feel that way. Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. My dad has a lot to do with them, but so does my great grandmother. My great grandmother was a country girl, and she lived to be just shy of a hundred. So I got to know her well. She died when I was eighteen years old, and a lot of us don't get to know our great grandparents to any degree. So I was fortunate in that way with her, and she was a great woman. But like I said, she was a country girl. Read the Bible every night. Just a sweet person. And up in Maine, we would have these family reunions every five years. And there would be 300, 350 people at these family reunions, mostly because up in nowhere, Maine, there was nothing to do but make more cousins. So there was all these people. And at one point during these family reunions, my great-grandmother would come and take all her great-grandchildren aside, whether it was 10 of us, 12 of us, whatever at the time. And she would give us one line, just one line, and then turn around and walk away. She wouldn't explain it. No matter how much you asked and chased after her, she'd go, no, you've got to think for yourself. And we're 10, 12, 14 years old. Well, when I was about 12, we had one of these reunions, and she takes us aside. And there were about 15 of us there. And she said, if they look that close, slap their face. And I'm a 12-year-old boy going, what does that mean? And she wouldn't elaborate. She turned around and walked away. When I got a little older, it hit me that, ooh, being the country girl that she was, 
I think she was talking to the girls. And if you're going to start liking boys and hanging out with boys, and if boys get too handsy, too familiar, slap them. That's all I could imagine that it meant. When I got a little older, maybe 18 or so, that never left my mind. And I started thinking, I wonder if she meant if people criticized you, not critiqued you when you asked for help, but actually criticized you, ignore it. Metaphorically slap them across the face. And I've never forgotten those words. And that's how I feel. And that's what I tell my cl Every client I've ever had knows that story. And it's go out and do the best you can do. If you don't prep, you don't rehearse, and you go out and wing it, well, you get what you deserve. And unfortunately, the audience doesn't get what they deserve. But if you do the best you can do and enjoy doing it and enjoy connecting with other people and someone criticizes you, the heck with them. Nothing you can do about that. I've always felt like that. I always tell my son that, too, whenever he gets into issues, especially with where he's at on the spectrum, you know, if people start saying, like, a lot of people that do that want your attention, and they want your attention because they're not getting it in a positive way. So what you're doing is feeding that monster that's going to continue to roar, so you just need to find a way. And I've done that, too. I've learned that as I've gotten older, where you just have to say, you know what? Is it really worth it? Of all the things that you can do in life, of all the things that you can parlay your attention and time out to, why that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> in line with this thinking, one of the one of the questions that comes up often is, what happens when someone heckles me? I'm talking, especially like in a breakout session type setting, and I'm talking and Someone entrusts me, Peter, what should I do then? And I said, well, you can try to ignore it, but everybody in the room sees what's happening, so why do that? And uh, maybe if you do try that and it continues, I said, I've had people say, well, you know, I don't agree with anything you're saying. You don't know what you're talking about. And I used the words that, and I don't even know who told me this many years ago, and I've used them ever since. And it was, look at them and say, you know what? You may be right. You suck at this. Yep. You know what? You might be right. It, it diffuses them. And maybe I do, but I'm just doing the best I can. And I've been asked to do it, so that's, that's all there is to it. You don't have to have bravado. You just go out and do it. Why be on your deathbed and going, you know what? It didn't matter what that person thought. Or that person. It doesn't matter. Yet so many of us still wonder what our high school girlfriend is thinking when she looks on our Facebook feed. Guess what? She hasn't thought about you in 30 years. She doesn't care. <laughs> Yet we worry about that stuff, right? What are these people? What's this person? What's my college roommate who I don't get along with anymore going to think? What's this person going to think? My cousin. What a, who cares? Who cares? First of all, they don't care about They're not thinking about you. Second of all, does that matter? Let's go up there yep. and have fun. Yeah, I, I recently had a situation arise where my Facebook account was hacked and it went away. Like I had, I, I had just my whole you know jazz show on there, everything, and it was a weird situation that was clearly hacked. 
because of COVID reasons. They couldn't review it. They couldn't review it and it went away. And I have not missed it a bit. It has been one of the happiest things that's ever happened to me <laughs> is the completely bad about It's like I still do some other social things, but like what you're saying there, there's a level of us that have to have that thumbs up. You know, patent, you know, hey, you're doing this and you're totally right. No one cares. And the, the sad reality about a lot of people is that people are so self-absorbed. There's, they're not even on their radar. So, you know, do something that completely validates things other than what other people think about you that aren't even thinking about you, you know? So, well put. I, I totally get it. But at any rate, hey, man, this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking some time out. I really appreciate it. I do as well. Thank you, Peter. Take it easy. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, business, literature, and music around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm-hmm.